ETF Prime is hosted by Nate Geracine, president of investment advisory firm, the ETF Store. This program is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Investing in ETFs involves risk, including potential loss of principal. Any past performance figures discussed are not necessarily indicative of future results. The ETF store is not affiliated with ETF Trends and ETF Database or any of its affiliates. ETF Trends and ETF Database participation in this program should not be construed as an endorsement or an indication by ETF Trends and ETF Database of the value of any ETF store product or service. Visit ETFstore.com for more information. Now it's time for ETF Prime, where we discuss everything you need to know about exchange-traded funds and the world of investing. Whether you're an investing expert or just starting out, Nate will help you get up to date with what's happening on Wall Street and show you how exchange-traded funds can help lower your investment costs, reduce your tax bill, and allow you to take advantage of investment opportunities around the world. And now, the host of ETF Prime, Nate Geraci. All right, really excited about the show this week. I'm sure many of you saw the announcement last week that ETF Prime is now partnering with ETF Trends and ETF Database. I couldn't be happier. Uh, I, I look at what Tom Hendrickson and Tom Leiden have built with that platform. It, it just really excites me as someone who covers the ETF space as closely as I do. They're also partnering on a brand new ETF conference next year. It, it's called Exchange. They're assembling a dream team of ETF experts, including some names many on this podcast are familiar with, Dave Nodig, Laura Krieger. And so I'm truly thrilled about this partnership moving forward. I've always thought it was extremely important to bring an independent ETF perspective to this podcast. And I think you'll be very pleased with some of the future plans we have in store. So this week, we do begin a new chapter and first up from ETF Trends will be the aforementioned Laura Krieger. I'm not even going to tell you the topic. If you've listened to this podcast for any period of time, you should already know what it is. So she'll join me momentarily. Now, also joining me this week are two individuals who I actually met through Twitter. And no doubt there are certainly pros and cons to that platform. I probably have a uh, slight addiction problem with it. But one of the pros is I've met some truly wonderful and extremely bright people. And I'll be joined by two of them this week in Jake Radin, who is Senior Director of Financial Product and Head of ESG at Open Invest, and Liz Simi, co-founder of Honeytree Investment Management. And I'll just say you're in for a real treat because these two know ESG investing inside and out. And I think everyone is uh, pretty well aware I'm an ESG skeptic, but I, I really believe I may have met my match having these two on the same podcast. I'm fully prepared to get embarrassed here. Uh, if you're not familiar with Open Invest, by the way, they are a direct indexing platform. So in addition to ESG, I'm going to spend quite a bit of time talking direct indexing with Jake. And then with uh, Liz, again, we'll talk plenty of ESG but she's also going to give us a quick look at the Canadian ETF landscape as well. She's based in Toronto. Great show. As always, questions or comments, you can find me on Twitter at Nate Geraci, or you can go to ETFprime.com. Let's kick things off with ETF Trends, Laura Krigger. 
Now we're joined by the experts at ETF Trends and ETF Database, the world's largest independent ETF-centric source for top industry news, trends, and insights. There's a couple of different ways to slice and dice these various ETFs. They can hold what are called total return swaps. Expect the unexpected. Laura, I guess we are getting the old band back together again. Thanks for joining me. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here, Nate. All right. So I teased our topic at the top, and I'm guessing a lot of people think we're going to talk ESG, but those people would be wrong because huge shocker. Instead, we're going to talk <laughs> Bitcoin ETFs. <laughs> a little bait and switch there. I love it. <laughs> well, and I would say we're going to look at this uh, not from the usual angle. We'll, we'll certainly touch on where the SEC stands and some of the filings in the hopper. But I've got to tell you, I'm starting to wonder whether the SEC is even calling the shots on this anymore. And I, I know this may sound a little uh, tinfoil hattish, which typically isn't my style, but I'm wondering if there's a higher power pulling the strings. And the way I would frame this is we, we know a number of politicians have expressed significant concerns over Bitcoin's use in illicit transactions and money laundering, tax evasion. Uh, I also think there's uncertainty over how Bitcoin might impact the U.S. dollar longer term, right? Is, is it some sort of threat? And so because of that, I'm wondering if there's this feeling that if a Bitcoin ETF is approved, that's sort of an endorsement of Bitcoin by the U.S. government, which is not something they want to offer just yet. And so, the, you know, basically there are some higher powers in the government slowing the SEC down Let's start there. Uh, am I crazy or do you think there could be something to that? <laughs> well, uh, I'm going to leave my tinfoil hat on the table for this conversation. But um, I do think that there is something, there's a core of, uh, a kernel um, of something there that I, I agree with. Uh, you know, as to whether the SEC is calling the shots here, I genuinely think they are. I think that politicians far and wide uh, do not get crypto assets. Uh, they So they're looking to who they consider experts to give them guidance on it. And that would be the SEC and the CFTC and the regulators. So, but there is pushback from regulators. There is pushback from politicians as well there should be. In my opinion, skepticism is warranted. It is healthy, uh, especially for such a new asset class as cryptocurrency. You know, it, it feels sometimes like crypto has been around forever, but the truth is it's still a very new asset class. Uh, the SEC and CFTC only really agreed on what kind of asset it was from a regulatory perspective just a few years ago. And so when you compare that to other commodities like, you know, corn and oil, we've had these markets for over 100 years, right? The supply and demand fundamentals that drive them, the, the liquidity in times of stress, the kind of natural rhythm and flow of volatility, that's all really well understood uh, in those markets. But in Bitcoin and in other cryptocurrencies, They've evolved so quickly that they don't have that same track record. You can look at what's happened over the past five or 10 years, but that's a blink compared to other commodities. And then you combine that with the fact that crypto is inherently this fragmented market, right? You've got over-the-counter trades in exchanges all around the world, outside the centralized banking system. And like, I mean, I get it. I get the skepticism. Um, one interesting question, one philosophical question, I think 
hasn't yet been adequately addressed is should it be the job of our regulators to create a market or should it be their job to simply regulate the markets that exist? So what I mean by that is, um, you know, should the SEC be tasked with creating a centralized trading market in crypto in Bitcoin, which is what would happen with the approval of a Bitcoin ETF uh, for an asset class where not only is there no centralized market already, but the asset in question was built from the ground up to be anathema to that sort of centralization, right? The whole point of Bitcoin is that it exists outside the traditional financial ecosphere, power to the people and all of that. So I, I think there are some remaining questions that are very legitimate um, that need to be addressed. That doesn't mean I'm, I'm not bullish on a Bitcoin ETF. It just means we've got to check our, or dot our I's and cross our T's first. In terms of publicly stated concerns by the SEC, so what's being fed to everyone, from my perspective, the single biggest issue, and you were alluding to this, it continues to be concerns over fraud and manipulation in the underlying Bitcoin spot market. So the SEC is concerned. They still don't have proper surveillance over crypto exchanges, and so they can't monitor whether there are any shenanigans going on there. And, you know, you think recently we've heard comments from SEC Chair Gensler about how there's not a federal regime overseeing crypto exchanges and how there's a gap in the system to protect investors. So let's just set aside my little uh, tinfoil hat theory for a moment. Clearly, those those are still concerns. I mean, any sense as to how close those may be towards getting resolved? Uh, and that was a sigh that carried a lot, I'm sure. <laughs> um, so I, I am honestly not sure uh, how far along it is to resolution, right? If you compare it to, uh, again, if you compare it to traditional commodities markets, which are well regulated and well understood, and yet every year, literally every year since I cut my teeth as a commodities reporter, I, there are stories of some trader or another uh, doing spoofing trades or other market manipulation in, well, primarily the precious metals market, but in many commodities markets as well. So these are well-regulated markets and fraud and manipulation still happens there. The difference is we can catch those manipulative trades, right? We can look, um, we can check the, the tape, we can, we have standardized data, uh, surveillance data that regulators can use to do the forensics uh, to catch the, the criminals, right? There just isn't that same sort of centralized record in the Bitcoin markets. And I mean, honestly, there's still, I think, a question of whether we can trust exchanges liquidity information, right? Up until recently, it was estimated that as much as 95% of all Bitcoin trades on an exchange were wash trades, meaning that exchanges were buying and selling coins to inflate, artificially inflate the liquidity that appeared to be on their exchange. And that statistic comes from a Bitcoin ETF application from a few years back. Has that situation been resolved? I mean, they say so, but uh, do we have the proof for it? So I, I think there's, I, I realize I'm sounding like a bit of a negative Nelly here, Really, I'm not. I, I'm, I'm actually bullish on Bitcoin and on a Bitcoin ETF. But there are these sorts of uh, foundational investor protection questions that must be answered to ensure that this is an asset class that's not going to blow up on investors and or, or that 
these are investments that are not going to blow up on investors. I mean, fraud and manipulation, it's always going to be a concern for the regulators. Sometimes it's not a deal breaker, right? They get to the point where they feel they can catch the fraud and prosecute it as necessary. But you want your regulatory bodies to be caring about this, to be thinking it through from all angles, because that's how they protect investors. Okay, so a question that I think this raises, let's just say there are still real concerns around fraud in man, uh, manipulation in the underlying market. And then let's just say, bear with me, there's something to the tinfoil hat theory, right, that the U.S. <laughs> government is pulling some strings. So from my perspective, that means in order for everyone to get comfortable, there's going to have to be much greater regulation of Bitcoin, right, mm-hmm. all, all the way around from know your customer to tracking transactions, tax regulation. But the problem is all of that really gets away from the core ethos of Bitcoin, which you were mentioning earlier, right? That it's permissionless, decentralized, those sorts of things. Do you think that presents a problem for Bitcoin? Like if we get all of this regulation, maybe Bitcoin isn't quite as attractive, right? Because it gets away from (laughs) why it was developed to begin with. I do not disagree with that. I think that is an issue for sure. Uh, The question I think now, though, is how much the, of the market the diehards uh, still make up, right? Um, you know, if the Bitcoin true believers leave, are, are there enough regular old speculators to keep the market liquid? And, um, you know, it is possible that with the passage of a Bitcoin ETF, that that uh, centralization of it or whatever, you know, people, uh, we, we start to see a liquidity dry up in the Bitcoin market. Folks jumping ship just as Wall Street starts to get comfortable with it. I I don't think that's going to happen, though. It is a possibility, but I don't think it'll happen because, I mean, we haven't seen it happen in Canada, right? Of course, Canada is a much, much smaller market than the States, but it is our our first best example of what could happen in a, uh, a market that allows for cryptocurrency ETFs. And Canada hasn't imploded yet. I mean, they seem to be doing just fine. Uh, The ETF seemed to be trading just fine. You know, there will be some Bitcoin enthusiasts who do decide they don't want to have anything to do with this and they move into, um, you know, there's some an impolite term for it, but it's basically bleep coins um, like uh, Dogecoin and the other meme coins that are out there. And, And those coins, I suspect, will become more of a Wild West Um, but you know, as far there are so many different types of cryptocurrency out there that as one becomes more standardized and, um, structured and more friendly to wall street, the people who are, uh, not down with that, they have options that they can go to. Okay. So you mentioned that you are still bullish overall on a Bitcoin ETF getting approved. With our remaining time here, let's offer a quick update on where the various Bitcoin ETF filings do stand. And by the way, I I want to mention to listeners, Laura has an amazing repository of all the Bitcoin ETF filings. So the differences, similarities, current status, you can find that at ETFtrends.com. It's in their uh, crypto channel. So the piece is titled The Race to the First Bitcoin ETF. But Laura, just give a a quick update on on where things stand here. Sure. So what we are looking at right now, um, what all the attention is on is 19B4 forms. And a 19B4 form is a a form that an exchange files to make it possible to list an ETF. 
Uh, and there have been a number of those filed for the various Bitcoin ETFs. The first one was uh, for Vanek, and that was filed in mid-April. Um, so when a 19B4 is filed, the SEC has 45 days in which to weigh in or extend their period of review. That would kind of place uh, you know, a, a ruling any moment now. Um, but the, the thing is, the SEC can and usually does push these out uh, for up to a maximum of 240 days. So I honestly would not expect to hear anything on a Bitcoin ETF this summer, especially since Gensler and co have made such noise about wanting to you know have some questions answered first. Now, um, there have been some suggestions that, uh, you know, some of the other people who haven't, some of the other potential issuers who have uh, not yet thrown their head into, or their hat into the ring, have maybe filed confidentially with the SEC. That's not possible to submit a confidential 19B4. Like, that's just a flat out no. Um, There are... uh, there are some things you can submit confidentially, um, pre-release S1 filings. You can get non-public um, guidance from the SEC, um, and you can submit confidential research. And I think that might be the core of that rumor, like what people are are, are getting at there. There is likely been, in fact, I think there is um, some issuers that have submitted confidential research um, in support of their filings. Uh, that information will never become uh, public um, because it's confidential, right? Like it's, it's, I guess this is just me speculating, right? But, um, you know, if that research does convince the SEC to approve a Bitcoin ETF, if that were the case, then the reason the SEC approved that filing would need to become public, you know? And so um, that confidential filing would also become public. But again, this is like, I, you know, it is what it is, right? <laughs> so there's no 19B4s being um, secretly filed so that people can like hop the line or anything. That's, I can put that rumor to, to rest. Yeah, and in terms of 19B4s that have been filed, again, where the SEC is officially on the clock to review, I show Vanek, as you mentioned, Wisdom Tree, Cryptoin, Valkyrie, First Trust, mm-hmm. and Fidelity. And then initial filings where that 19B4 has not yet been submitted, uh, I, I show filings from NYDIG, Galaxy, uh, One River, which that's a, a carbon neutral uh, Bitcoin ETF fund, and then Tucrium, which would own Bitcoin futures. And then I, I, I think we should probably mention that two ETF issuers have actually filed for uh, Ether ETFs, just the initial yeah. filings, right? Vanek and Wisdom Tree. Before I let you go, I, I have to ask you I mean, any. Any sense or thoughts on on timing of approval? I mean, I I think early in our conversation, we certainly maybe painted a little bit of a bearish picture. I I will say my optimism has waned a little bit more so just because of the comments that I've heard from Gensler. It just doesn't sound like he's there yet. But any thoughts on timing of approval? Um, I think we will likely hear more clarity uh, as we get closer to uh, the winter, to be honest, because that's the most... Um, if I remember correctly, uh, December is kind of like the drop dead deadline for um, the SEC getting back to the uh, to Vanek on their proposal. And so that, I think, is going to be when we hear more. They're not going to do it any time before then. So. Well, Laura, great having you back on the podcast. Really excited about this new partnership with ETF Trends. And I, I, I know we'll be chatting again soon. Thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for having me on. Take care. 
That was ETF Trends' Laura Krigger. My next guest is Jake Radin, Senior Director of Financial Product and Head of ESG at Open Invest, who's a really interesting company. So they offer direct indexing to both financial advisors and individual investors. And of course, one of the potential benefits of using direct indexing is that investors can exclude certain stocks based on their own set of values, which that's where the ESG angle comes in. And I should note that prior to Open Invest, Jake actually led sustainable investing strategy at Pacific Global Asset Management, and he's now on the line with me from Los Angeles. Jake, welcome to the podcast. Great connecting. Hey, Nate. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Can you hear me all right? I can. Sounds great. So, so look, I mentioned this at the top, but uh, you and I actually crossed paths on Twitter. So I would say we've had a, a few friendly debates on both direct indexing and ESG. And so now here we are, right? We're, we're bringing this to life on the podcast. Uh, first, I, I think a good place to start is uh, I, I've covered this topic multiple times on the podcast before, but we always have new listeners joining can you just briefly explain what direct indexing is? Sure. Yeah. So, you know, direct indexing is the idea that um, as opposed to buying a fund that tracks um, some underlying benchmark that you can just buy all or some of the individual names in that benchmark and hold it in a SMA. Um, that's in essence, you know, the, the I think the most straightforward way to talk about direct indexing. And what are some of the benefits of doing that? Why, why would an investor want to do that? Yeah, there's um, there's a few different reasons, and it depends on the type of the account, the size of the account, um, and the goals of the investor. But you know, generally speaking, um, the most I think sort of well accepted, uh, frequent reason quoted for doing direct indexing is as tax alpha and uh, the if, assuming you're a taxable account, whereby um, depending on your optimization and or and or replication strategy and an algorithm, you know, you can you can take stocks that have gone up and down that lead to the return of the, the benchmark, and you can advantageously harvest losses and rebuy um, stocks with similar return profiles or whatever it is you're using to do your, your security selection and replication. And you can you know, harvest losses for the year and or excess losses you can carry forward, which allow you to offset gains or income uh, year in and year out on your taxes. And so there's a, that's commonly called tax alpha, essentially. So, um, that's kind of the most common uh, reason. I think that's the most universal anyway. There, there aren't too many people with taxable accounts who wouldn't want to be able to harvest some losses if it, if it doesn't uh, lead to excessive tracking error or um, um, uh, you know, uh, otherwise distort the returns of the profile of the portfolio, which is kind of the goal for most direct indexers. To, and, go ahead. Oh, and then, you know, the other reasons, obviously, or maybe not obvious to some of your new listeners are um, around, like you said, values alignment, um, customization, um, the SGs, uh, some of those considerations. And then there's actually kind of a third category that I think gets talked about a lot less, though you're starting to see it a little bit more in some of the materials from direct indexers and, and you know, industry pundits and analysts and publications catching on to this, which is um, reporting 
customization, interaction, and engagement with clients. So, um, and you know, that's I think that's true for both the retail and the advisor-led channel. But the advisor-led channel, I think that's especially important. Um, and we can get into that in a little bit. I'm not sure where you have us going, but um, I'll stop there for a second. Yeah, no, I actually want to get into to each of those points that you made. But I, I guess just broadly speaking, why is direct indexing becoming more popular now? Because I always hear people say, well, th- this has been around forever, right? It's basically separately managed accounts. So, so why is this getting more run now? Sure. Yeah, I'm, you know, um, five, six, seven years ago running separately managed accounts, um, you had a lot of considerations that you don't have anymore, or at least uh, they've changed. So, you know, it was very hard. I think the only place doing fractional shares, for instance, seven or eight years ago was Folio. At least that was the only one I was familiar with at the time in asset management when we were managing separately managed accounts. And so depending on the size of the account, the size of the rebalance, um, you could you could have you know much tighter um, uh, tracking. You could have um, you can do more with the cash. You don't have to leave as much left over. You could get um, uh, closer to your target weights. And so that has become much more ubiquitous, right? Now a lot of um, brokerages offer fractional shares. So that wasn't true before. Um, and then just overall transaction costs, as we know, have just come down enormously. Commissions on trading have come down quite a bit. So you know, if you're buying a portfolio of five ETFs and you have to pay a commission, that's five commissions. If you're buying a portfolio of 500 individual names and you had to pay a commission, that's 500 commissions. So the the price goes up really quickly when you have to pay for trading. But when you don't have to pay for trading, um, things get a lot more interesting and your options open up quite a bit. I think um, people say tech or sort of like sophistication of the tools. That's also incredibly important. The and it's it's a two-sided thing. It's one, the brokerage is opening up APIs and um, two-way tra- uh, interfaces for uh, folks to, to build uh, interactions with between their systems and the brokerages to submit trades and rebalance and get account information. It would be really hard to do uh, what we do if that wasn't the case. We'd have to somehow manually load those statements or something like that. Um, and then also, I think the general trend of tech and tech enablement within asset management and just more technology professionals being available to work, you get um, the ability to build some sort of you know hybrid asset management and tech firms such that you have people on staff who are building these uh, interfaces and two-way communication um, uh, you know engineered platforms that allow you to to do this. And so, uh, you, it's a confluence of a lot of trends. And, you know, 10 or 15 years ago, yes, you had custom SMAs and you even had people trying to replicate indexes in uh, SMAs, but you didn't necessarily have either the tech enablement or the technical expertise uh, available on both sides to to create sort of this ecosystem of of tech enabled trading and rebalancing and account management. And I think that's that's huge. So in terms of the benefits of or the potential benefits of direct indexing, you mentioned tax alpha, which we can certainly come back to that. But um, I, I want to ask you about this aligning interest uh, with with values. I'm sorry, aligning investors uh, holdings with values. And you, you've said previously that direct indexing is a huge threat to ESG ETFs in particular, which I actually agree with that. I, I think that's 100 percent correct, just because ESG ETFs aren't one size fits all right? Which I think that's a big problem. However, even more broadly speaking, you've said direct indexing is a threat to 
all equity index products, which I, I feel like that's a pretty bold statement. So let's talk more about both of those, why you think direct indexing is a threat to ESG ETFs in particular, but, but even more broadly to all equity index products. Sure. Yeah. So on the, the all equity index products, you know, uh, I have a, um, a contentious relationship with Twitter and uh, uh, <laughs> my, my earliest attempts at using Twitter, which was being kind of uh, bombastic and loud, uh, pr- probably not the best approach. Uh, I've reevaluated some of that, but I stand by things that I've said in, in spirit, at least. So, um, you know, I think they're a threat to passive index ETFs. And when I say threat, I don't mean like it's going to zero and direct indexing is going to be 100 percent of the market. I'm suggesting that like um, passive index ETFs had no real challenger for the last, I don't know, five to eight years. Um, you know, they had tax advantages and um, trading advantages for a long time over mutual funds, and they were kind of just running wild. And I think that there are places where direct indexing makes plenty of sense for a number of different types of investors over a passive index ETF. And I think that's where there's a threat in that um, the tax alpha component, um, some of the rebounds timing stuff, um, arbitrage around um, publicly disclosed additions and deletions to the index. There's just a lot of things you can do when you're buying the shares instead of buying the ETF shares um, that I think we're going to see even more kind of sophisticated, um, um, like, it changes over time in terms of why there's more value proposition there and owning the shares versus owning the ETF. I think there will always be a place for um, uh, untaxed accounts potentially to be using passive uh, passive ETFs. Mm-hmm. Um, there's probably um, market making and trading reasons why people would still want to use those versus buying all the individual shares at the institutional level. Um, you know, there's probably use cases I'm not even familiar with uh, for why they're not going to die. But but I, I stand by the fact that there's a threat there to everyone just defaulting to passive ETFs all the time, uh, because I think this is a pretty viable alternative for just a, a number of reasons. Um, on the ESG uh, ETF thing, I, that's where I think it's an even bigger threat because, um, you know, uh, there's there's people mean a lot of different things when they say ESG, and um, so the fact that even that that's the case makes me question the utility of an ESG ETF because between ratings dispersion, between changing regulations um, at a country level, but it's occurring globally, uh, you know, ESG is coming to mean very different things. And ESG ETFs can't change very quickly with those changing definitions. And and the world of, uh, you know, analyzing so-called non-financial data, aka ESG, um, that's going to change quickly enough that it's going to be pretty disruptive to the way ESG ETFs are, are composed and created and eventually die. And more importantly, you know, what you see when you're in the business of direct indexing and helping advisors sell customized solutions to their clients is that um, the value in ESG isn't necessarily for a lot of people in um, like best of breed and, okay, these this is a, a basket of stocks with the best like the best opaque broad level ESG scoring, it's it's far more personal and specific than that. And so, you know, ESG ETFs just can't ever really replicate that. Yes, they can be thematic, they can be narrow, um, and they can try to appeal to a certain um, 
subset or group of people, but that is a um, market research and marketing and product development nightmare because it's far easier to make a, a customized SMA than it is a customized ETF. Like, like how, where do you stop? Where do you draw the line? How custom do you get on the ETF side to try to capture the varying and frankly changing preferences of people over time? Like, you know, three, four years ago, um, the primary fascination in ESG for most people was around E and environmental um, uh, situations and environmental considerations. And, you know, post-2020 COVID, George Floyd, you know, the sort of like long ignored S uh, in ESG has finally kind of come to the forefront. And people are, are actually looking for much more robust and specific um, and less generic S ESG products. Well, that's really, there are very, very few ESG ETFs that cater to that. And more, more importantly, um, the, ES, the ETF industry was not able to be particularly agile in the face of that changing um, sort of like global consciousness. Whereas um, with the direct index uh, SMA, if you have the right ESG research and teams and implementation, given your you know, your optimization, the way you build portfolios, you could potentially respond to that very quickly. Um, or you could have already had the solutions in place ready to go for people. So, um, yeah, it's just, a, it's in a lot of ways, as far as ESG is concerned, it's just a far more agile um, and, and customizable uh, way of doing things. And, it, and, that has, and, and that's important when you're talking about a, a product or service that is, is highly personal and and highly subjective for folks. And I don't mean to say that there's no such thing as an attempt for people to make ESG objective. And when you're talking about concerns about like financial materiality and and um, more specifically targeting quantifiable metrics like carbon footprinting or or water use or something like that. But um, I, I, we could keep, we could keep stay on this topic if you, if you want. Where I, I, it's still better in a SMA to do those things as well. Well, let, let me ask you this, and, and again, I think you and I are on the same page in terms of the threat the direct indexing poses to, to ESG ETFs in particular. But as you walk through that, which I thought that was an, an excellent uh, window into how you view direct indexing and ESG, which we can come and talk more about ESG here in a minute. But you, you mentioned several words. You mentioned responsive, agile, uh, customizable, uh, uh, objective, and I think that gets down the path towards my single biggest concern with direct indexing. And, and I think this is where you and I have butted heads a little bit on Twitter, sure. which is that direct indexing is, is basically active management in disguise. And I, I don't say that as a knock on active, by the way. I, I think we just know if you look at the data over time, making active decisions in a portfolio tends to detract from returns. And so my concern is by tinkering with index holdings, uh, investor returns will suffer. And the example that I always use, it's the same one, but I'll, I'll provide it to you, which is let's take Facebook. So let's say an investor doesn't want to own Facebook stock because of their data privacy issues. Well, you know, first of all, it is possible that Facebook stock skyrockets, right? And the investor misses out on that because they don't own it. But I think more importantly, what happens if Facebook becomes the gold standard for protecting customer data? What is the decision-making process to add that stock back into the portfolio? It, it just feels to me like it can be such a slippery slope when investors start picking and choosing which stocks to own based on what I, I think some would argue are arbitrary reasons. And, you know, investors can now do this with a swipe of a button. 
so there's a lot to unpack there. Um, uh, a year's worth of conversations, but let me <laughs> try to do justice to some of them. So um, I think maybe this is chronological or maybe this is just uh, what I think is important. <laughs> um, it, there's a bit of a myth that um, investors are so obsessed with returns versus everything else uh, that happens in the world when they invest in with, with, with regards to companies they may or may not buy the shares of. Uh, there are actually a, a large number of, of folks who invest who actually are perfectly happy to get market or even slightly below perfect market rate returns in order to have what they care about reflected in their portfolio. And when I say that, I mean a number of different things. I don't just mean screening out Facebook. So, um, like the the kind of the big three levers you have um, in an in an SMA where you're implementing you know, values alignment or ESG are tilting, screening, and engaging, right? And so uh, when you screen, you can't engage. Engage means proxy voting and shareholder resolutions. I mean, it can also just mean reaching out to the company as a shareholder, but generally speaking, um, uh, taking some, some sort of action with more, with more teeth in it is, is involves actually voting the proxies. Um, and then there's, there's tilting, which is saying, I am supportive or, or overweight a thing, and then there's screening, which is, okay, just, just get me out of this thing. That could also be underweighting. Um, depends on the direct indexer and the algorithm and the optimization and the approach. But, um, you know, first of all, you know, what is arbitrary? Um, is it arbitrary to remove Facebook because of data privacy concerns? Um, I don't actually necessarily think that's arbitrary if that's what you care about. Um, and, and if the question is, okay, so, so what's the actual mechanism by which you determine Facebook has um, either improved or, or you know, further deteriorated its its ability to protect your privacy. Um, that doesn't have to be an arbitrary decision. Like so, you know, we have thousands of um, thousands and thousands of accounts across retail and advisors at at Open Invest. I think, although maybe I shouldn't quote that because I, I don't have the exact number. But the point is, we have we have more accounts than one person could sit there and personally make individual portfolio decisions on. And so, um, you know, we, we have developed data sets and data collection and processes and procedures for evaluating each um, indicator that, that informs an, an ESG thing. And so, um, you know, one way to avoid, I think, what you're expressing as a concern of sort of like renegade active management decisions around ESG stuff is to have a very clear and transparent and accountable process by which you make those decisions, which is what drives everything we do at Open Invest. And so um, I think that's an important consideration. And I, I, I'm not suggesting other people don't do that as well. It, um, in fact, you know, uh, but I think you can use the big third-party data providers, or you can go out and find your own data, or you can use some hybrid model of the two. The important thing is that you are consistent, that you are clear with your clients and advisors and, and um, uh, partners what you're doing, and that you apply that universally and consistently um, for folks. And so uh, I think you can kind of erase the idea that it's arbitrary. I think you can always have a healthy debate about, okay, well, what is your indicator for Facebook data privacy? And there are a number of ways to try to attack that problem, but that's more of an um, ESG methodological issue, I believe, than it is like a, a renegade active management problem, potentially. 
Jake, just a couple of minutes left here. Uh, Let me lob you another uh, question that probably has an hour-long answer, which we're not going to have time for. We'll we'll have to do this again. But um, with with ESG, I mean, what do you specifically think the impact of ESG investing is? Like, do you think it impacts a company's cost of capital? Uh, Do you think it catalyzes change at companies? You know, I think of what we just saw with Exxon and and engine number one recently. What what do you view, I mean, just to the... To the average investor, what do you view as the, the, the purpose or the longer-term impact of ESG investing? I think, um, first, and, first and foremost, uh, people, people need to f- do what they feel is right. And if you're talking about hard-earned money or, or uh, long-term saved money, um, it's really important to offer people the opportunity to have some agency over that. The idea that you would um, sort of divorce people's um, values and agency over what they do with their money when people's investments and savings tend to be, you know, either a much, uh, you know, a large piece or even a majority of their assets. To me, that has always been kind of a, an insane <laughs> situation. Like we make personal decisions based on our values all day long, every day with every single thing that we do. The idea that somehow you could magically or that it would be a good idea to divorce people from doing that with their savings too, to me seems like um, a real, just a concept I've never personally understood. Um, you know, whether I speed on the street outside of my house or not is a values based decision that I make every day. Like uh, I am, I'm charged with lots of decisions in my life all the time that I have to make quick and maybe even more considered value judgments about how I behave or act. And so, um, you know, I think the world is awakening to the fact a little bit more, um, in, especially in the asset management, financial industry, financial services industry, that like actually that isn't some kind of um, unbreakable covenant that that somebody before us agreed to. That of course we can have agency over those things. Um, and so, you know, I think that's an important thing to give people a tool to be involved with. And in terms of the long-term impact, I mean, it could save Exxon from climate change. That's a pretty good impact, right? Um, it, it absolutely changes the way companies behave and the way they message. And I, I would actually argue that it's ESG in the last 10 years has provided a really important um, kind of live experiment for government regulators to pay attention to and finally take a stand on and start to change the way they regulate. Um, because, you know, it was largely at the, the discretion of, of uh, clients and investment managers previously, but, and now you're finally starting to see, even in one of the last stalwart holdouts in the U.S., you've started to see the Fed and the SEC do their requests for comments, and, and the countdown has started for uh, climate change and probably some other um, social and environmental issue um, regulations to come. And so there's absolutely a theory of change there that um, just by being loud about what matters to you and what you care about, and if you have some money um, to put behind that, that people, it's, it, it does cause change, whether it's the, the cost of capital for some folks. Yeah, that's going to happen. Uh, um, that's going to happen on the, for the worst actors. It's, I mean, it, it, we already see it reducing the cost of capital. Green bonds have incredibly low rates, right? And so, um, and so do some other more exotic types of like sustainability linked bonds, water bonds, that kind of thing. So like, um, it's it, it, it's not universal necessarily. It may not be an incredibly easy relationship to tease out in every single instance, especially when you're talking about equity as opposed to debt. But um, 
there's no question in my mind that there are knock-on financial effects to various types of ESG considerations and investing. And then there's, of course, the whole sort of shift we're seeing with, as you mentioned, engine number one and Exxon and board seats, where you're finally starting to see some of these shareholder resolutions around um, climate change and, and other sort of ESG topical issues, like finally getting institutional shareholder support. And that has always been kind of the holy grail there, because you've had small shareholders and groups of, of um, shareholders trying to get these things, and even actually getting resolutions passed. But, you know, they would be ignored. They were non-binding. And so, you know, Exxon would ignore calls for people to look at their uh, or to issue climate change reports or or inventory their stranded assets or whatever the case may be. And so the getting everybody aligned um, is going to force major change. And like I said, it may actually save Exxon from itself in the face of like absolute recalcitrance in the face of uh, a changing world and a, and a dying business model. And so I don't know how else to convince someone that this stuff leads to change, but um, there it is. Well, Jake, I thought that was really well articulated. Um, I, I truly appreciate your perspective on both direct indexing and, and ESG. I certainly look forward to some future uh, Twitter interactions with you. Uh, thank you for joining me this week. Appreciate it. Yeah, of course, Nate. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Take care. That was Jake Radin, Senior Director of Financial Product and Head of ESG at Open Invest. I'm now joined by Liz Simi, co-founder of Honey Tree Investment Management. And like Jake Radin, I actually met Liz through Twitter. And I'll just say, I've really appreciated learning more about her views on ESG investing. Uh, she takes what I would call a very pragmatic approach to the space. She's also clearly very passionate about the topic, extremely knowledgeable. And from what I can discern She's actually not in the camp that broad-based ESG ETFs are going to save the world, which uh, might disappoint the ETF issuers who listen to the podcast. But Liz is now on the line with me from Toronto. Liz, it's a pleasure connecting. It's, uh, it's nice to chat with you in, uh, not on Twitter. Well, is that a fair characterization that, that broad-based ESG ETFs aren't going to save the world? <laughs> I mean, I'm not... You know, the idea that the investment industry is going to save the world, I think, you know, is, is the problem. Um, I, I don't think it's as much corporations and investments won't save the world. I just I'm not sure the investment industry is, is, is qualified to lead the charge in saving the world through ESG strategies. All right. So we're going to get much more into depth on uh, how you do view ESG. But let's start with your background in Honey Tree Investment Management. Um, how did you first get involved in ESG investing? And then tell us a little bit about Honey Tree. Sure. Um, I grew up in traditional asset management. So I worked for a firm called Bristol Gate, um, which is a long only concentrated uh, equity manager. And that's all I knew. Um, but Outside of investing in my life, I guess you could argue I was pretty ESG focused, um, whether that was sports or nonprofit stuff or, you know, uh, advocacy. And and I, I always 
you know, the first concept of ESG that really ever crossed my mind, we, we held a company that I thought was kind of pretty bad for the world in, in our portfolio. And I, I, nobody really cared because nobody cared about ESG. Um, and, and, a, and a big client said, I don't like this company as well. And it wasn't because it wasn't their financial issues. It, they, they had some non-financial issues. And, 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 and so that was kind of like my first exposure to ESG. We never talked about ESG. Allocators never brought up ESG. Clients never brought up ESG. Um, but it, it slowly kind of over time, you could see all these products being launched in Canada and the U.S. Lots of pass, you know, almost passive, systematic, and active. And all I understood is they weren't what was in them wasn't what the end client wanted. And that's when um, my co-founder and I met, and uh, we're, we're two women in Canada. She's a 15-year ESG uh, expert, and I knew nothing about ESG, but we knew we could build a product that met what the end clients were looking for and concentrated active, right? There's lots of folks working on the systematic version and, and various ind- indices, but for active investors, we did not see a lot of true ESG products. Uh, on the Canadian shelf, even globally. Um, and we thought, well, we, we have the skills. We could do this. Um, the, the world needs more women-founded asset managers. Um, but, but more importantly, we, kinda, we, 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 were, we knew we could take a slightly different approach that, that met the end client's needs. So that's kind of the story of Honeytree and my ESG journey from knowing nothing to apparently being an expert. And I think it's important because I was not trained in ESG. If I had been working 10 years on an ESG team in a bank uh, or a big asset manager in Canada, first of all, I wouldn't have been a portfolio manager because the ESG experts tend to, to be separate teams. And you need to be a portfolio manager to start a firm. But I also, and, and much to my, my co-founder's uh, 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 bit of shock, could throw out all the existing ESG structures and how, how it was approached and how the data was approached um, and, and that's kind of a good thing, which is why I, I can I, I'm kind of a bit of an outsider to ESG, which is why I, I I'm pretty comfortable calling it out because I can see what the problems are. Right. We can't just pretend any, our industry is perfect and doing things great. I mean, that's kind of against ESG. Right. To not to not, you know, call things up. So that's that's why I do what I do. Um, and that's where kind of honey tree came from. Liz, you mentioned not seeing enough uh, true ESG products out there, and, and I think you started alluding to this. Can you talk more about the concerns around what is out in the mainstream right now, including on the ETF side? What, what, what are some of the, the issues with the existing ESG products? <clears throat> the same thing happens whether the end client is an uh, uh, inexperienced retail investor, an institutional allocator, or an ESG skeptic, or, or, or you know, an ESG-obsessed person. They, and I know this because they all tell me. They look at the top 10 holdings of whatever vehicle is, it doesn't matter if it's passive or active, and they go, these aren't all ESG. Um, and, and so you can see, and this is especially, you know, true in the, the, the you know, in, we're going to talk about Canadian ETFs, this is especially true in the more systematic space, is, if you're saying you're going to do a screen on anything, ethics, gender equity, emissions, whatever, how do the top 10 market cap companies stay in there, right? And so it looks to the end client like there's no difference, and it's certainly not worth 
paying more for, right? Um, whether it's 10 versus 20 basis points or, you know, uh, 70 or versus 90, it, it, you're not going to, you don't believe the product. And the, the consumer or the investor can't say why they just, they know, and, and this happens in active too, right? I'm not just picking on the systematic and the, the passive side of things. You can look at a lot of active, concentrated ESG strategies, and they too are index hugging, which it's very easy for that end potential client to say, well, but these are the same top 10 as the S&P 500 uh, ETF, right? And so that's that and I think the under the, the idea that, again, investment firms really care about this stuff, I'm pretty sure most folks are pretty skeptical about that, you know, given um, BlackRock's <laughs> recent issues and and other, and the thing is, there's nothing wrong with being skeptical of ESG. Of course, folks are going to package this and, and, and market it, but there are people who really want to invest their public markets as impactfully, as sustainably as possible because, because they, want, they want to do good in the world, but they also believe those are better investments. And so when you show them a uh, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the largest 10 holdings in your, your active concentrated uh, strategy, and they're the same as the index, they just, they don't believe you've done the work and they don't, you know, really, there, there's a skepticism about our industry in general, right? Uh, whether it's ESG or, you know, our toxicity issues or our own lack of ESG. No, 100%. You know, it actually reminds me of the uh, the, the alert the SEC recently issued with Com uh, Commissioner Hester Pierce, where she said that there were a lot of financial firms that were finding uh, gold and green, right, that they were offering ESG products because it was lucrative to do so. And I do think for some investors, it's difficult to discern between sort of these companies that are just looking for a money grab versus the true ESG believers. Um, but, but I want to come back to something you mentioned in terms of uh, seeking better investments, better returns. You run an active strategy. And so because of that, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, I mean, I have to assume you do believe integrating ESG into the process can generate outperformance, right? Or else you wouldn't do it. Um, the, the challenge that I always have here um, is that active managers as a whole, in my opinion, are extremely efficient at combing through literally every nook and cranny of companies. And so I always wonder when it comes to ESG, if this can be a driver of outperformance, why would other active managers ignore this? Like, like that just doesn't make sense to me. Does that do, do you follow that? Oh, sort yeah, of that yeah, logic. Yeah. I always like to say that good portfolio managers were always looking at this stuff because uh, <laughs> there's two issues: traditional finance theory which I did not study, <laughs> teaches us that shareholders are the most important. That the board's job, the corporation's job is to return money to the shareholders. The problem with that is, well, employees and customers also drive the bottom line. And so PMs who've always known that, who understand that, say, turnover is a huge cost or, you know, getting major lawsuits over environmental spills um, cost the corporation money, they have always been looking at this stuff. Um, what what happened is then ESG popped up and ESG became silo. And so you have these special ESG teams, uh, more women, obviously portfolio managers skew more male, who, who, are, who are doing the research separately. So I think there are a lot of PMs globally for all eternity 
who who understood the role non-financial data played in their assessment of a company. Um, and, and, you know, it, it, we generally talk about it being around governance, but that's just because we weren't producing a lot of this data that's now available. So that's, that's, that's kind of what I believe. But then you have, you have traditional financing. Well, what does diversity have to do with the bottom line? And you have to, you have to leave finance theory and you have to go to governance and leadership science and theory to, to make use of that data. So it's, it's really, you know, I think, uh, and that's why I like to call it non-financial data. Financial data is the traditional financial fundamentals and non-financial is everything else. And not all of either are useful, especially if you go to different teams. So it's, it's so, so you're right. Everybody should be looking at this, and lots of folks do, you know, it, but it really, you know, one of the biggest issues is long-termism, right? I think the core, the most important thing of ESG or even impact is long-termism, but we live in a, in a daily news investment world, right, uh, where you're supposed to be doing all this stuff. So, it's, you know, there's lots of ESG shops who are not long-term focused, and there's lots of non-ESG shops that are very long-term focused and much more likely looking at governance consistency without even selling an ESG product, and they could have a higher ESG rating on their portfolio. So that's why it's messy. Um, and, and I think what's going to be very interesting is this data, the data that we use, is where finance, financials were in the 90s, right? You could kind of buy full data sets. You could kind of get APIs. You could kind of get you know, various system, you know, standardized financial sets. That's where we are with ESG now. Um, we were not there three or four years ago, um, but we definitely are. So there's, there's going to be a good revolution in, on the quant side, on the quant data availability um, with reporting and things like that, that I think will make it clear to folks, uh, PMs, how to use this data in both the quantitative and the qualitative sense. Um, but yeah, it's, it's for for us. It's really, and this this goes into another one of your questions. For us, it's really about outperformance. Like mm-hmm. we, Honey Tree, we wanna we wanna do good in the world. We 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 don't want to destroy the world, but we use this data because we believe it adds insight in addition to the financial data into these companies. Well, let me ask you this, and you probably see me put this out on Twitter before. I, I feel like it's my classic ESG rebuttal. Um, Look, my base case is that financial markets are a natural ESG screener. And very simply, what that means is that companies who don't do the right things according to society standards, whatever those are in aggregate, we can debate that, but let's just say whatever those are in aggregate, those companies will ultimately see that reflected in their stock prices. And I used the example of Facebook earlier with Jake Radin, so I'm just going to continue with that. If society as a whole thinks Facebook is really bad with data privacy, in in my opinion, they'll stop using Facebook. And that will ultimately be reflected in Facebook's profits. Those lower profits will be reflected in Facebook's stock price. Their market cap will shrink, right? And and they'll naturally have a smaller weighting in in any index. And so I, I guess just high level, I feel like society as a whole decides what's ESG and what's not. And over time, that's reflected on the investment side of the equation. And I think more importantly, even in our real world experiences, right? I I feel like we positively evolve over time. We've shown that throughout human history. 
what, what, what do you think is wrong with that thought process? Which there could be many things. Well, I, well it, it, I think you're right. And I think that's why we only hold 20 companies. We're just trying to avoid all the Facebook, right? And, and that's why, I mean, I was raised in concentrated active investing. We, we, we hold, we run 20 positions because we don't want to hold the, we, we can reduce the risk of the index by, by holding those. So that's, I mean, I agree with you completely. This stuff, um, it, it comes from a million different places, public sentiment, regulation, corporate innovation, peer pressure. Uh, it's, uh, I was trying to, there was a really good example of peer pressure this week. I'll see if I can remember it. Um, it's, who was, oh, uh, I can't, I'll see if I can remember it. It's, there is, companies doing bad stuff, doesn't matter in which part of their business, will eventually have to pay for it and it will eventually be reflected in their financials or, you know, they'll, they'll turn into Enron with a, you know, accounting catastrophe, that kind of stuff. So absolutely. Um, And it, 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 but it's not that efficient, right? I'd say it's priced in in the long term, Mm -hmm. right? And, and that's, that's kind of the, the tricky part. All right, we could probably talk ESG all day long, but we're uh, running a little short on time, and I do want to ask you about the Canadian ETF landscape, just because I'm always fascinated in hearing about different ETF markets around the world. Um, can, can you just paint for us a, a quick picture of what the Canadian ETF landscape looks like? Like, what are some of the key differences between that and, and, and the U.S. ETF market? I find this fascinating. Um, so the, there's two key differences. In Canada... ETFs are mutual fund trusts. And so they were never, we were never required, you could, but you were never required to disclose daily holdings. So there's no just semi-annual financial Mm -hmm. statements disclosure of holdings. Um, So technically all ETFs are semi-transparent. There's no semi-transparent. So that's that's one thing. So there's a lot of um, pooled pooled vehicle structures that are both a mutual fund with an ETF series. And so what's happened is a lot of asset managers, uh, active, systematic, passive, are either launching a vehicle of both for their new strategy or just ETFs. Um, and it just depends on, so you'll have one bank um, who's launching a whole series of active ETFs that are not in a mutual fund. You'll have another bank that has every fund in, in, as an ETF too, same thing with an asset manager. So that's just one, one, the key difference and why we have so many more active ETFs up here. Basically, there's very few folks just launching mutual funds of active strategies. The other thing that we have is there's no pay to play. There is no ability of the broker dealers to limit access of an ETF to any of their advisors or to charge for it. Um, whereas they can, because of how our mutual funds ordering system works, they can not allow access to just a regular mutual fund. But because the ETF is exchange traded, every not every advisor, because we have a lot of advisors in Canada who can only trade mutual funds, although I think they can trade some ETFs now, although it's limited. Um, it, it, there is the, the like one of the most shocking things I find about the, the U.S. is you have to pay to access the, just to get your vehicle on. Uh, you know, one of the, the wirehouse platforms or whatever. So that's, those are the two main differences and why we have, and I just, it, it's funny because we just have 
so many active ETFs up here. And so hearing the conversation regularly that everybody assumes ETFs are passive. I, I mean, I think the U.S. will be where we are in, I don't know, seven or eight years. I think I saw a stat. Yeah, no, I was going to say, I think I saw a stat that 90% of Canadian investment assets, so that includes both mutual funds and ETFs, are active, which just blew me away. That's interesting. I mean, I guess it, it could also be a definition, like maybe this is... Yeah, this and I'm not sure. Stuff. I think that I'll have to go back and see where I pulled that from. But um, just, just about a minute left. One other area I'm curious about, what about on innovation? Because it seems to me like Canadian regulators are much more willing to embrace innovative products, whether we think about marijuana ETFs, psychedelics, uh, of course, my favorite topic, Bitcoin ETFs, Ethereum ETFs. <laughs> Any sense as to why that is? Um, my guess is it's we're more comfortable with the ETF structure, with stuff that's not regular in it. Um, and, I mean, I know it's just a smaller group. Right. And I think, it, you know, from what I looked at the filings for the Bitcoin ETF, it was basically a, a, a group effort, not a group effort, but, you know, purpose got theirs approved um, through, through, through work with the regulator. Right. It, it was it was working hand in hand with the regulator. So the regulators are um, uh, I've always found them lovely up here. Um, but I think I think that's kind of. You know, and, and, and there's there's a, a, a if the banks or large managers, you know, we have a small group of asset management firms in Canada. There's not that many. If somebody wants to do something, you know, they can. Uh, a, a, it's easier to to you know make it happen through networks. So that's my best guess. Um, and I think we just we our marijuana was approved earlier. You know, we <laughs> all, all those kind of things uh, kind of drive some of that stuff. Well, Liz, we're going to have to leave it there. Uh, really enjoy the conversation. Certainly a pleasure connecting outside of Twitter. I, I always love that. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. That was Liz Simi, co-founder of Honeytree Investment Management. That'll do it for this week's ETF Prime. As always, you can find me on Twitter, at Nate Geraci, or you can send comments through ETFprime.com. Next week, I'll be joined by Joe Hone, Senior Portfolio Manager at Dimensional Fund Advisors, who this week, they're supposed to convert some $25 billion in mutual funds to ETFs. And then Amanda Ribello, Head of Passive Sales at DWS Group, is going to discuss investing in China. And then we'll also uh, touch on currency hedging as well. Until then, have a great week, everyone.